we're constantly told that we need to protect ourselves against identity theft, uh, lest the fraudster get hold of our personal details and uh, use them to empty our bank accounts or use our credit cards. <clears throat> Very sensible. But one thing that people generally don't seem to realize is that our modern secular society is robbing us of something even more important than money. It's robbing us of our identity as human beings. And the narrative that is being presented to us, in the Western world at least, by the mass media, by, <clears throat> by governments, by academia, by schools, uh, the narrative that's being presented to us is that mankind is really just an accident. Just an accident. He is uh, an accident of evolution, they say. And before that, he was the result of an accident of chemistry when the origin of life took place. And in order for the origin of life to occur, then there had to be uh, a, an accident of cosmology uh, to create places like planet Earth. <clears throat> and so I want to devote the first lecture to a critique of this very general idea that man is an accident. Because, you see, if man is an accident, there is, in fact, no purpose to humanity. By definition, accidents are purposeless things. And if there is no purpose for humanity, there is no purpose for you and me. And that's why I found the answers to the Syracuse University uh, questionnaire so interesting because <clears throat> All those students were concerned with just this very question. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose on earth? And I think much of the malaise of our Western society uh, and the rise in self-harm and uh, uh, mental problems among young people do actually have this as their root cause that people do not know what they are, why they are here, and what the purpose of their life might be. <clears throat> and uh, this book is an attempt to answer those questions. They're very important questions. Uh, I hope the book will prove to be a very important answer to them. But we have to see that. So is man, first of all, an accident of biology? Now, the theory of evolution, <clears throat> and I must distinguish here between macroevolution, which means large-scale evolution, and what is sometimes called microevolution, the fact you can breed all sorts of different varieties of dogs or cats, <clears throat> small changes, nevertheless, that do not go outside of the species, or at least outside of the genus, uh, microevolution is no problem. In fact, the Bible teaches microevolution. 
Because Paul at Athens, when he's preaching, says that God has made from one man all nations to dwell upon the face of the earth. And as we well know, nations <coughs> uh, differ considerable, considerably in their, in their behavior, in their, in their beliefs, in their appearance, in the color of their skin. That is microevolution, and there's no problem about it. But macroevolution uh, teaches that all life has derived from some original small spark of life, some original organism, and that everything that has ever lived has arisen from that one tiny accidental, as we shall see in a moment, spark of life. And I want to focus, uh, and I can, of course, only focus upon one cameo for each of these things because the time wouldn't allow anything more. Um, <clears throat> uh, one the thing I want to focus upon in this question of are we accidents of evolution is the difference between men, people, and chimpanzees. Because, you see, the chimpanzees said to be our closest animal relative. And the idea is that uh, something like 6 to 13 million years ago, humanity and chimpanzees shared a common ancestor. And uh, I'm going to picture that by <coughs> a familiar evolutionary illustration, and that is a tree. And the tree has a, a trunk, and the trunk represents the common ancestor. By common ancestor, of course, I mean that if you were able to trace your own family tree back uh, for 300,000 generations, which would be quite a task, uh, you would find it merged with the family trees of every chimpanzee that's ever lived. So there was a common ancestor. So evolution or common descent is another term that's used, uh, teaches. So we're going to represent this, first of all, by the trunk. That's the common ancestor. And then at some point in time, the trunk divides into two branches. And one branch uh, is going to lead to modern chimpanzees. The other branch is going to lead to modern human beings. Of course, there may be other branches, but we're not interested in those for this illustration. And uh, what happens? As the branch grows, <coughs> that growth represents two things. It represents the progress of time, and it represents the gradual transformation of the creature concerned, uh, little by little, eventually arriving at the modern form of that organism, modern chimpanzees, modern man. Uh, and so we have the branches, as I say, growing and representing the passage of time and the progressive transformation of the particular species um, <clears throat> bit by bit, until it arrives at the final product. 
Now, what drives this process of evolution? All this is according to the theory of evolution. What is it that drives that transformation? And the answer is, in the theory, it is driven by mutations, by genetic mutations. And the word mutations means a change. And the idea is that, quite accidentally, um, creatures undergo mutations, changes in their genetic makeup. Now, there's no, no problem with that. That is true. It happens. And those mutations are what are supposed to drive evolution as creatures rise through the animal kingdom and become more, uh, more complete, more adapted, uh, more perfected animals and creatures. But those mutations occur in individuals. And mutations in an individual do not create evolution. Evolution only can occur as the mutations that started with an individual spread through the population, whatever it is. And in order to spread through the population, there are a number of things required of that mutation. First of all, of course, it must be a favorable, uh, advantageous, beneficial mutation. It must give the creature <clears throat> some, some kind of ability that it didn't have before. It might improve its eyesight, for example, might give it a slightly bigger brain. Uh, and so that individual has received a beneficial change. Now, whether beneficial mutations ever occur is, to my mind, a very moot point. But for the sake of argument, we'll assume they do. So the mutation must be beneficial. Secondly, the mutation must be passed on to future generations. The parents must pass that mutation on to their children. And thirdly, if that mutation is going to spread through a population, then it has got to impart some improved ability of reproduction to the parent. So you've got some fairly strict conditions for a mutation to actually spark off an evolutionary change. And the evolutionary change doesn't happen until it has spread through the generation. We, uh, evolutionists have done calculations on this and, and come up with the idea that, that in a typical population of perhaps 10 to 40,000 uh, individuals, uh, it would take 300 generations for that beneficial mutation to spread throughout the tribe. <coughs> and so that is happening, they say. And that's what makes the branch grow, it's what makes the, the common ancestor eventually <coughs> become 
a, a modern chimpanzee or a modern human being, depending on which branch you're on. Okay, next thing we need to ask is this. <clears throat> How, what is the rate of such mutations? They're, they're very rare because of all the requirements, but uh, let's say that they occur. And, in fact, it's possible for people today, scientists today, to measure the rates of mutation in human beings and in, in chimpanzees. That has been done. And it's found that the rates of mutation are roughly the same. In fact, some evolutionists have calculated <coughs> that the chimpanzees were actually uh, enjoying, if I can use that word, enjoying mutations at a 50% higher rate than those on the human branch. So either they're evolving at the same rate, according to the theory, or chimpanzees have an edge. They're evolving a little bit quicker. <coughs> now the final piece uh, in the puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, is this. What did the common ancestor look like? What kind of animal was it? Well, nobody thinks it was half chimpanzee and half human. Um, and the, the evolutionists themselves arrive at the conclusion that the, the common ancestor we're talking about, 6 to 13 million years ago, <coughs> was rather like a chimpanzee. And immediately a flag should go up in your mind. Because they're evolving at the same rate over the same time period and yet chimpanzees have simply evolved uh, from themselves. You know. <laughs> There are superior chimpanzees today, and, and some of the things they, they say about them is that they have better disease resistance than the ancestor, common ancestor, um, uh, better powers of reproduction than the common ancestor. But, but, you know, apart from keeping fit and having kids, it doesn't seem to have made much difference up along the evolutionary branch leading to modern chimpanzees. Now, the same, same time period with the same mutation rate driving the process of evolution as it is envisaged, human beings have mastered fire, learnt language, invented art and science, medicine, they've explored the planet, they're busy exploring the universe. Uh, they are capable of doing most amazing things, playing the piano, other things we take for granted that chimpanzees just can't do. And, of course, they've learned how to build zoos for chimpanzees. Now, <clears throat> let me just finish this point by giving you another illustration. Suppose you, you go to a race horse race meeting and the particular race 
finishes up with only two horses in the race. It does happen sometimes. Uh, so it's a two-horse race. Now, it so happens that the two horses are identical twins, and the two jockeys are identical twins as well. So when they start, there's no difference between them. Common ancestor. Okay, the gates go up, and they're off. One horse heads down this track towards the finishing post as fast as it can go. The other horse just wanders out of the gate, looks around and starts nibbling the grass. That's what we're being asked to believe. Now, if that did happen in a horse race, you'd think it had been fixed. One of the horses had been doped. And um, <clears throat> is it conceivable? Is it, is it possible that humanity can be explained by evolution using that comparison? My answer is no, it can't. There's an interesting, um, <clears throat> interesting book some of you may have come across. It's a bit technical, but it's worth reading if you're up to it. It's called Aping Mankind. It's by a medical scientist called uh, Raymond Tallis. <clears throat> and uh, he goes out of his way to say that he is a card-carrying atheist and an evolutionist. Okay? But at the same time, he says, look, man is different. And I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from his book. I've got them in my own book, which is easier access, because they're on opposite pages. <clears throat> um, uh, he says that, that something happened with man that didn't happen with other animals, with other great apes. Humans woke up from being organisms to being something quite different. <clears throat> Embodied subjects, self-aware and other-aware, in a manner and to a degree not approached by other animals. Out of this, a new kind of realm was gradually formed. This is the human world. It is materially rooted in the natural world, but is quite different from it. It is populated by individuals who are not just organisms, but inhabit an acknowledged, shared public sphere, structured and underpinned by an infinity of abstractions, generalizations, customs, practices, norms, laws, institutions, facts, and artifacts unknown to even the most social of animals. Well, full marks for that. But then he goes on, at the end of the book, he says this. Okay, you might say you have told us what is wrong with the biological, that is the evolutionary, account of human beings. But isn't this only the beginning, not the end of the matter? Now tell us what you will put in its place. The truth is that I don't know. But I am sure that no one else knows either. Well, that's an atheist for you, an evolutionist, but he knows, he recognizes that man cannot be explained. The phenomenon of man, humanity that is, 
cannot be explained by evolution. So is man an accident of evolution? No. And that's not just my opinion. Well, let's move on uh, quickly to the next thing. <coughs> is man an accident of chemistry? You see, the point is, as I said earlier, the theory of macroevolution, of common descent, uh, doesn't just trace chimpanzees and human beings to a common ancestor. It traces every life form that has ever existed upon this planet to some original ancestor, some single-celled creature, uh, some bacterium, some something. Nobody knows. Because no one knows what the common ancestor of man is. There aren't any, any fossils or anything like that that can be identified as the common ancestor of chimps and mans. And almost certainly that common ancestor does not exist. Well, it's even worse when you come to the origin of life. Where did the original spark of life come from? <clears throat> what was it? What did it look like? It obviously had to be something that had uh, produced or developed the capability of reproducing, because that's the essence of life. Well, what we're told is that, well, it all happened by accident. It all happened by chance chemistry, that uh, various chemicals, various small molecule chemicals somehow <coughs> linked together to make big molecules. Uh, and, and somehow the molecules of life, DNA, RNA, proteins, and uh, lipids, and more, all these other things which are <coughs> essential to even to the simplest form of life today, um, it was just an accident of chemistry. That is impossible. And a lot of very intelligent people still believe it, and teach it, and insist upon it, even though they know it is impossible. And why would they do that? Well, the answer is very clear. That if they don't do that, they have to acknowledge the miracle of divine creation. They're not going to do that. God has to be, has, has to be, airbrushed out of the picture completely. It's got to be a natural explanation. <clears throat> the only natural explanation they can offer is that chemicals accidentally got together. And you'll read about this, you'll read about it in your newspaper from time to time about people's made a discovery here or discovery there, and um, they will attempt to explain. <clears throat> now, I worked for over 30 years as a consultant to the Dow Chemical Company and although I'm a physicist, I was very frequently uh, consulted by uh, people who are <coughs> synthetic chemists. That is to say, their work, their entire uh, professional work, is synthesizing new chemicals. And uh, <coughs> they would come up with um, a new small molecule something that's never been made before. And uh, it might even 
be something that's still on the drawing board. This is what they want to make rather than what they have made. Uh, but then, in order to start getting useful materials, you have to join those molecules together, like, like copper beads on a, on a chain. Uh, they have to be turned into polymers, and that's not an easy task. So they would come to me and they'd say, I've made this monomer, the building block, if you like, the one popper, uh, one bead in the popper chain. I've, I've actually made it, I've got some of it in a test tube, <clears throat> but before I go to the trouble and time and expense for the company of learning how to polymerize it and so on, can you please tell me whether when it is made into a long chain polymer, can you tell me whether it's going to be any use? Can you tell me what this property is going to be? And from my knowledge of physical chemistry, I was able to, to, to tell them, well, that's not going to be any good or it's, it's not, going to, not going to be any better than something else that already exists. Or I might say, hey, that could have some very interesting properties that other things don't have. Now, I, I say that because <clears throat> those people are experts in making new molecules. And how do they do it? They do it with a tremendous amount of theoretical chemistry knowledge. They do it with very highly purified chemicals. Uh, they do it with painstaking research. And eventually, if they're lucky, they come up with something that's novel. But we're being told that the molecules of life, the molecules that constitute living things, just happen. Now, those chemists know very well that he, they couldn't take all the components of, of uh, a living cell. We know what they are, measure them, know how, how much of each material, each chemical there is. They couldn't take those, put them in a cake mixer, mixer and turn it on and go on vacation. And come back, open the cake mixer and say, hey, life. They, they know that wouldn't happen. They know it couldn't happen. But that again is what we're being asked to believe when people say that <clears throat> life is a chemical accident. But quite apart from the chemistry, and I don't want to bore you with any further chemistry, quite apart from that, there is one final reason why it couldn't happen, and that is that life is not basically due to chemistry, it's due to information. It is the information that is written, I think that's a good word, coded is a more technical word, it's the information that is written on the biological molecules like DNA <coughs> that constitute life. It isn't the DNA, it's the message that it carries. Some years ago, um, somebody produced a joke book and <clears throat> the book was, it looked like any other book, uh, lots of pages, nice cover, 
And the title of that book was What Men Know About Women. And uh, <coughs> you give this book to somebody and they opened it and every page was blank. Now, that's an analogy, you see. <clears throat> I can have all the DNA in the world, but unless the message that is written on the DNA is there, it's not going to produce life. And it is indeed the, the, the genetic code and, and other codes that are uh, intrinsic to the function of a living cell that really matter. You can produce strands of DNA in the laboratory, but they're not alive. They have to be encoded with information before they could participate in a living cell. And of course, once you've got molecules, you still haven't got a living cell, which is like a miniature factory. Even the simplest living thing we know today is a veritable factory full of not only molecules, but molecular machines, all doing their own thing, producing their own products. Anyway, um, I've got to uh, uh, get a move on. Um, <clears throat> we have, um, therefore, every reason to dismiss the idea that life was an accident of chemistry. So man is not an accident of evolution, and he is not uh, the result of an accident of chemistry. But then there's a third stage. We're walking back through time here, of course. There's a third stage. <clears throat> you couldn't have life unless <clears throat> you had a, an environment which is hospitable to life. And as far as we are aware, at this moment in time, the only place in the entire universe that is hospitable to life is planet Earth. Now, <clears throat> I know, and you'll read about this in your newspapers or television news broadcasts and feature programs, um, people say, well, just a minute. Uh, we are a planet <coughs> of one particular star, the sun. And there are millions of stars in our own galaxy, and there are millions of galaxies. So there must be millions of millions of millions of planets out there in the universe. Who knows? In fact, uh, it's possible to detect planets. We call them exoplanets because they're outside the solar system. And <clears throat> to date, uh, they have detected something like 2,000 plus uh, planets, which are around stars, which are elsewhere in the universe, elsewhere in the galaxy. And they say, well, you know, it's just sheer luck. Uh, lucky Earth, lucky planet, there's a book called Lucky Planet. Uh, the, um, the idea is that with, with so many millions and millions and millions of possible planets, and if 
life just happens by chemical accident, well, there, there must be millions of planets out there in the universe with life forms on them. Um, <clears throat> that's a little bit of an interesting story. Um, less than a hundred years ago, uh, people expected to find intelligent life on planet Mars. In fact, it was in 1924 that uh, uh, Mars had its closest approach to Earth, <laughs> its orbits came close, and the American government ordered a 36-hour radio silence uh, just for five minutes each hour, not the whole time, but for five minutes each hour, uh, maybe the first five minutes, I don't know, uh, they ordered radio silence throughout the nation so that if there were any radio transmissions from Mars, they could be picked up and they wouldn't be swamped by all the Earth transmissions. Uh, they even had the uh, Army's chief cryptographer standing by to translate any messages received from Mars. Uh, I guess he was probably quite relieved when his services were not called upon. But um, anyway, of course, they drew a complete blank. <coughs> but they were, they were looking for intelligent life on Mars. Well, now, uh, the amb ambitions have, um, have been greatly reduced. But right now, right now, uh, there is um, something called the ExoMars Project in which a Mars rover has been deposited on the surface of the planet Mars with equipment allowing it to dig six feet down into the Martian surface because they think, well, uh, we don't think there'll be life on the surface of Mars because of the ultraviolet light uh, that would kill it. But it may be that down deep in Mars, uh, there is evidence of some bacterial life, something like that. Millions of dollars and pounds are being poured into these searches for life elsewhere in the universe. You've probably heard of SETI, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They're building vast radio telescopes, China, Brazil, other places, uh, one in China just started up, and the avowed purpose, I mean, they're useful for general astronomical research, but the avowed purpose is to, to try to locate intelligent life elsewhere in the universe because they say, if we succeed in doing that, we shall understand ourselves better. We shall have some kind of handle on answering the question, what is man? That's going on now. And yet, what people tend to forget are the <coughs> necessary conditions for a planet to be hospitable to life. Uh, I mean, the astronomers look for water, liquid water. It's if there's liquid water on a planet, 
or evidence of liquid water on a planet if it's in the right sort of temperate zone, the Goldilocks zone, as it's called sometimes, uh, that uh, surrounds each star when it's not too hot and not too cold. Um, and they say, ah, there's water on that planet, or there's water on that satellite, and there might be life there. Let's go and have a look. But, you know, to be hospitable to life, a planet needs to have more than just water, liquid water. You're going to have the right kind of weather, uh, not so violent that it destroys life. You've got to have weather that is constant over, over thousands or perhaps even millions of years. Uh, you've got to have weather that allows uh, what we call the hydrological cycle, the evaporation of water from the oceans, uh, which can then precipitate on the land to provide rain of water and, um, and allow the land to produce living things. Uh, so you've not only got to have water, but you've got to have weather. And then the second letter, A, you've got to have the right kind of atmosphere. Now, in, in the solar system, uh, no planet has a life-sustaining atmosphere. Either it doesn't have an atmosphere or very little, uh, so there's nothing to breathe, or the atmosphere is poisonous uh, to life as we know it. And you've got to have the right kind of atmosphere, and therefore the likelihood of having a planet with the right kind of atmosphere. And, and by the way, as far as we know, uh, the atmosphere is, is rather critical. Uh, we need oxygen to breathe, and we need a source of the production of oxygen, which is very largely growing green plants. And um, we couldn't live if we had a 100% oxygen atmosphere. That's poisonous to human beings. But because we have just that balance between the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere and, and nitrogen and other uh, carbon dioxide, other gases, uh, it's just right, you see, for sustaining life. Well, not only do you have to have the right atmosphere, T, you have to have the right temperature. I've some extent mentioned this also, um, uh, the, the temperature on a planet has got to be within a range that doesn't either, either kill life off by, by baking it or kill it off by freezing it. And, and you've got to have that temperature uh, sustained over, temperature range sustained over long periods of time and also over the entire circuit of the planet around the star. It's no use saying, oh, well, I have, a, have, have the right temperature to sustain life for 90% uh, of, the, of the year. Uh, but 10% of the year, the, the temperature will kill off all life. Not going to work, is it? So in other words, you're, you're looking at something that has to be just right again temperature. Then E, the next letter, is um, environment. 
Now, some of the things I've already mentioned are parts of the environment, but in addition to those things, uh, you've got to have the right kind of soil. You've got to have the right kind of, of uh, elements in the soil. You see, life uses certain elements, chemical elements, life as we know it. We don't know any other kind. And uh, uh, you've got to have those elements. They've got to be, they've got to be somehow available to man to obtain and to ingest. Uh, the environment has got to be right. And then the last letter, R, and that is one you might not think of, and that is repulsion. Um, most of the planets in the solar system are protected from intense bombardment by meteorites because we've got a huge planet called Jupiter that actually has so much gravity that it attracts all those things away. And so, although we do have meteorite impacts on Earth and sometimes they do great damage, nevertheless, uh, Earth is not pockmarked with these impact craters that other planets are. So you see, there are a whole range of requirements for a planet to be hospitable to life. And then finally, we can say this. Not only has the planet got to be hospitable to life, but the universe has got to be hospitable to life. Now, now I know what you're going to say. Most of the universe is not hospitable to life. It's either empty space, uh, which cannot sustain life, or it's flaming stars, uh, which cannot sustain life. Uh, uh, surely the universe as a whole is really hostile to life. But, you know, astronomers um, and astrophysicists, if you like, have, uh, uh, have gradually come to the conclusion that the universe <coughs> is fine-tuned for the support of life. Um, I've got a, another quote here, which uh, I think is, is very significant. If I can find it. Yes. Um, a, a, a book entitled A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tused Cosmos, uh, was published <coughs> not too long ago. And the, the foreword to this book was written by a Nobel Prize winner, a physics Nobel laureate called Brian Schmidt. <coughs> and he writes this in the foreword to the book. Uh, the book, he says, takes you on a tour of the cosmos in all its glory and all its mystery you will see that humanity appears to be part of a remarkable set of circumstances involving a special time on a special planet which orbits a special star or within specially a specially constructed universe 
it is these conditions that have allowed humans to ponder our place in space and time. I have no idea why we are here, but I do know the universe is beautiful. He recognizes, as, as do, do many others, um, that there is something rather strange about the universe. And, and that is fine-tuned. Now, <clears throat> you've, uh, I'm sure, been to a, a musical concert sometime, an orchestral concert, and you've heard the uh, musicians tuning up their instruments before uh, starting. And uh, if they didn't tune them up, you'd have a complete discord, wouldn't you? Uh, they wouldn't all be in tune. And, and what is becoming increasingly clear is that the universe is fine-tuned. That is to say, the laws, and particularly the constants that occur in those laws, things which science has to take for granted and, and cannot predict, cannot understand why they're there or how they came about, that those laws and constants are such that if they were a little bit different, there could be no life in the universe. Now, that's a big subject in itself. I do deal with it in the book, of course. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not going to try to elaborate because we've got uh, we've run out of time. But increasingly, even non-Christian, non-theistic astronomers and astrophysicists are coming to the conclusion that the universe is as one man put it, a put-up job. But it, it knew we were coming, another famous physicist said. It's a designed universe. And why is it designed? Why among the myriad of possibilities are these laws and constants just right for the sustenance of life? Well, there we are. We have looked at the three accidents that I mentioned in the first place, and they're the major features in this narrative that is offered to us, that man is an accident. And we've seen that it's impossible that man could be an accident of evolution. Impossible that man could be an accident of chemistry. Impossible that man uh, could uh, have emerged uh, and uh, come into existence as a result of an accident of cosmology. Okay, they go on to say, well, what about the multiverse? Well, I haven't got time to deal with that. We deal with it in the book. So man is not an accident. And you'll have noticed that in uh, at least two of the quotations I gave, the writer, in admitting this, has to say, I've no idea how man came into being. I've no idea how the cosmos became fine-tuned. I've no idea. Nobody else knows either. But of course, I beg to differ there. David the psalmist, who first asked that question in Psalm 8 and verse 6, what is man, went on to give an answer to the question. And that answer has been around for 3,000 years. What is man? 
he says to God, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put all things under his feet. The answer, of course, to the question is God made us. And that's what we're going to look at in the second lecture.